Purposely Podcast with co-founder of Work for Good, a guy called Danny Witter. Work for Good focus on enabling businesses to give to good causes and threading it into their brand. He also helps charities gain access to funds for businesses. Um, you'll enjoy this episode. You'll hear about his career as an investment banker and how he turned towards a life of purpose. Enjoy. businesses embed charitable giving pledges into the day-to-day of, of their commerce in ways that are good for business and actually are a, an efficient way of raising funds for cause because essentially you're monetizing your expertise, what you're best at, what you train at. Purposely Podcast speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Welcome, Danny. Hey, Mark. How are you? I thought we'd go straight into Work for Good uh, and what is its mission and purpose? Uh, We set up Work for Good to help charities raise uh, funding from mission-driven smaller businesses. And you've built a team and um, there's a software component. Um, give me an example of the kind of mechanics of it and how it works. The problem we're solving, and particularly in the UK, is that it's actually not very easy for smaller businesses who want to embed a charitable giving story into their brand uh, to do so. It's kind of fine if you're a massive supermarket and you want to create an arrangement with, with, with a charity and you have lots of time and lawyers and CSR departments and everything else. But if you're a sole trader or a micro business and you decide that you want to give one pound or 5% of every sale to cause and tell that story as part of, of what you do and how you're perceived by your stakeholders, it's really tough. And it's tough for a couple of reasons. Charities are, get approached by a lot of small businesses and they can't really handle it. Um, They can't handle the volume, they don't know who's time wasters, they have policy limits of many tens of thousands of pounds below which they simply don't find it economic to negotiate the uh, the documentation that the Charities Act over here requires. And as such, most charities turn away smaller business giving intent, which is kind of crazy. Uh, So what we did is we built a platform to make that easy both for the charities and the business side. We built a giving platform pretty quickly, you know, did the traditional MVP thing and, and tested it. I guess the key step for us was between the initial concept, and we can talk about the kind of origins of it and the light bulb moment. Um, but we started building a giving platform for small businesses, and we hadn't actually come across the USP that we were going to to uh, to solve in terms of making that behavior easy so it's you know it's been evolution and it's been full of you know uh, a couple of important pivots as to what we are to who just learning you go to solve one problem and you find a a different problem that's part of the same space and you therefore have to solve that in this case it's the the legal requirements of businesses being allowed to embed giving pledges into the sales of, of goods and services and and promote what they do there's a lot of legislation around that. It requires written agreements with any charity you're purporting to support. Uh, and that's a big impediment for smaller businesses. And that's the key USP that we solved. The value exchange is much wider than that, but that's the key thing. And we didn't even know about that legislation when we started the journey. 
Uh, originally, we were going to be set up as a charity, but we decided to go the commercial route for various reasons. We can dig into if, uh, if that's a, a, a sort of conversation of interest to you and your listeners. But um, in terms of scale, yeah, we've um, we've gone through. We're getting close to two and a half thousand uh, small businesses using the platform, or who have registered on the platform now, all active all at the same time, uh, and we're about at a thousand charities. Um, which is a good number, and it goes from the tiniest through to, to the UK's biggest brands. We've got 50 of the top 100 UK brands on there, so we're pretty established for the charity world. Um, but vast amounts more penetration available there. Six million micro-businesses in the UK, and of the 190,000 charities, there are probably, we reckon, about twenty to 25,000 are our addressable market. Um, so kind of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're established, we're growing fast, but there's, there's a vast amount we can do. And so you're for-profit business. Um, what do you do with a profit? Oh, we don't make any. <laughs> it's a hypothetical concept right now. Um, we're probably, you know, even if we continue to exceed our, our five-year financial forecasts, we uh, won't break even for at least another 18 months. Uh, so it's been a, been a long journey. Um, but most of, of of what we what we make will be um, uh, will be reinvested in, in growing growing the size of our business and and the impact we can have. Back at your uh, work history, so you are uh, investment investment banker turned social entrepreneur. Would that is that the fair description? Yeah, it's a line I used to use. Probably still have on LinkedIn somewhere. Um, ah, you yeah. busted me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I thought social entrepreneur was a great label till I read a book about it, and I suddenly thought, no, I'm, I'm not that. It's a, I'm, I'm, I'm purporting to be something much greater than uh, than I think I am. Um, but uh, yes, it's. I did 25 years in the city of London. You know, great career. I won't disrespect it, but it was never very soul satisfying. Um, and. Uh, I was lucky enough to kind of diversify within that role to chair the charities committee in the. Uh, in the institution I worked for and got involved in various social impact programs we sponsored. I found myself getting so much of my personal growth from that stuff. Uh, so five and a bit years ago, I walked out of walked out of that world for, for a bunch of reasons, frankly, but professionally, I wanted to take all of my energy into this kind of doing good uh, world. And uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I've been doing. Have you at any time doubted yourself? Have you missed your in our banking life? Nope. No, nope, not at all. I, you know, 25 years is a long time to do that for a start, even if it's the best job in the world. Um, yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess, I think so very occasionally I miss miss how well it paid, but actually I don't spend a lot of time dwelling on that either. Yeah. And people that you work with in that world, still in touch with, um, and uh, you, you're still, you know, you, convinced every day that you made the right decision based on watching their journey or have you kind of moved on well the city was becoming a less fun place uh, to work in and then compensation was going down and particularly at Deutsche where I was was sort of suffering through 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 uh, the kind of later stage hangovers of, of the financial crisis um, so yeah I think I timed my exit quite well but you know when what, what, what floats your boat and what gets you out of bed in the morning isn't the day job, then it's time for a change, right? Yeah. And and how why work for good and, and how did that come about? 
Uh, well, I met Rupert, whose idea it was, just before I finished banking. And he, he was introduced me just to get some advice on how he could take this idea and turn it into reality and what kind of corporate structure he should be considering and how to fund it and all that kind of stuff. Um, I liked the guy and I liked the idea. And then I was thinking about it after I left the city uh, and kind of got back in touch with him to ask if I could help. Uh, and I also just recently discovered kind of angel investing. I was putting small amounts of my savings into a couple of ideas that were primarily about positive social impact, but were also commercially viable businesses. Um, and uh, so I decided to offer him just a little bit of capital to get it going, and then it became clear money wasn't the problem. Uh, uh, clearly money was needed, but the issue was that he didn't have any bandwidth to uh, to make it happen. And so I offered to, um, to kind of get involved and do it for six months pro bono just to get this thing up and running. Uh, and here we are five years plus in and uh, yeah, still working for free. It's a fine, fine decision. And Rupert's um, story and his reason for starting it was very personal. Yeah, it really was. Um, so he's got, uh, he's got three young kids. His eldest, Otty, was very unfortunate to have two rare genetic disorders. So she spent a lot of her first few years uh, in and out of hospital. Um, she's got brittle bones and a defective heart and something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, let, on, let alone on your own child. And Rupert's light bulb moment was when he was trying to do a fundraising uh, exercise. Uh, Otty had just been helped slash saved whatever else by the Evelina Children's Hospital and he was trying to do a fundraiser and he was just really busy at work and didn't really feel he had the time to go and get fit enough to run a marathon to raise some funds by kind of tapping up all the same friends and family he tapped up several times already. Um, and at that moment he got approached by one of his clients asking him to run a one-day workshop for uh, a bunch of their senior managers. And he was so busy, he would have said no, but he decided actually I'll squeeze it in, but I'll give the 2,000 pounds you're gonna pay me to the Evelina Children's Hospital. And three cool things happened. One, the relationship with his client uh, became deeper because of this wonderful thing they'd done uh, associated with, with their work together. Secondly, his colleagues at work were extra motivated by this serving a higher purpose at the same time as, as doing the day job professionally. And thirdly thought, God, that's a lot easier than running a marathon. And so that was kind of where the light bulb moment came from. Why don't yeah. more small businesses embed charitable giving pledges into the day-to-day -day of, of their commerce in ways that are good for business and actually are a, an efficient way of raising funds for cause because essentially you're monetizing your expertise, what you're best at, what you train at five plus days a week. Uh, so that's where the concept came from. And he's a successful banker. Um, that's what he still does or what's, what's. No, his... no, he's a marketer. Right. Um, so he runs an experiential marketing agency. And he didn't have the bandwidth to do it, but he knew someone who would do it. And not only would you do it, but you'd do it for free and you'd fund it. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and when you took it on, did you think you'd be, you know, nearly six years on, did you think you'd be where you are now? What, or did you not think about it too much? Uh, didn't think about it too much, but I certainly thought we'd get to this point in half the time. Uh, and, by, and by now would be kind of a huge national brand. Uh, 
and we're we're not there we're not there just yet um the growth is fast now and we'll get there but yeah um and maybe that's you know i hear more and more from other founders that it's pretty pretty standard pretty standard unless you get exceptionally lucky that just things take time um as they say uh what is it about genius being a uh, 90% perspiration and 10% inspiration? You just got to put in the hard work, particularly when you're doing something in innovative and to a degree teaching a new behavior. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's what we're doing. It isn't the easiest place to be successful, but the value uh, to creating a massive new channel of philanthropic funding by facilitating small business giving in a way that hasn't been done before. thinking a bit more about what we've been through recently with COVID um, and the lockdown. So um, before we started the podcast, we talked about office space um, and you had, you guys have, have no longer have an office space. That's right. And you, and you suddenly found you had a completely virtual team. Um, tell us about your journey in, in that when COVID arrived and what that was like for you as a leader. Yeah, well, the, the, the office piece is, was relatively simple for us. You know, we're lucky we're not a manufacturing business. Um, it's an online platform. The business was set up to be 50-50 anyway in terms of we had an office, but we only spent half the working week in it. So important to have time together. That osmosis and culture is really, is really good. Um, but also flexibility is good too, and you can be sometimes more focused if you're in your own space. So to go from 50% remote to 100% remote was entirely trivial. Um, it was kind of weird because we were, I suppose the biggest challenge as a leader at that moment was things were starting to accelerate nicely. We realized we needed to expand the team. We'd been going through all the search process and found the two key hires. Um, and at the time we only had two people on full-time and a couple part-time. So two more full-time hires was a big expansion of the team. Uh, and then the first lockdown came and nobody really knew quite what was happening. Uh, and for a second, we briefly thought about kind of to what extent do we need to slow down or even mothball things. Uh, we took a contrarian position to be brave and suddenly thought, actually, we might be more needed and there might be growth opportunities in the changes that this is going to create. Uh, so whilst everyone else was going furlough left, right and centre, we actually you know, increased the, the team by 50%. Um, Wonderful, and that, yeah. And that proved really smart in between all the different dynamics that lockdown brought, but also fundamentally uh, made a lot of people think about some of these issues. There was suddenly a real spurt of growth in those first couple of months of lockdown, and we did exactly the right thing. And so, yeah, that was, yeah. That, was, that, was, that was a key leadership moment, and luckily we called it right. Yeah, and... I think back then there was a lot of when things settled down, there was advice from people to whatever you decide, be decisive uh, and and take a stand. Um, do you remember what your feelings and emotions were in terms of did you were you in the sort of doomsday camp or were you did you stay pretty settled? You'd been through other economic crises before. Uh, I won't lie, it was a, a bit scary. Uh... And as we we're discussing before this podcast, I'm still slightly scratching my head at this kind of boom time, feel good, purchase lots kind of environment. Uh, um, 
because it's a lot of disruption. A lot of businesses have been shut for a long time. Uh, their, their kind of uh, estimates of up to a million micro businesses, mostly sole traders, are probably going to go out of business if they haven't already um, because of, of this disruption. So it's, it's pretty big in terms of the economic impact. And yes, I was worried. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of the lockdown itself. Yeah, um, it's an interesting one because actually the lockdown was, was my third problem uh, and a danger of oversharing. I, I've had a most brilliantly blessed life. It's just been, it's been wonderful. Um, but the last couple of years had been tough and 2019 was very tough for me. I had the combination of, of the end of a 23-year marriage, but also a series of family deaths, including, including a, a, a young nephew at a tragically early age. So uh, kind of turned up at the beginning of 2020 going, yeah. <laughs> now I hope it's going to be a good year. And of course, then lock, lock yeah. kicked it was yeah. a different third out of three in terms of stuff that I'd had to had to face. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a relatively unstressed kind of person. So lockdown didn't hurt me too much and a danger of being a, that kind of annoying smug person. Uh, or maybe let, let's put it a different way, a, a very grateful and appreciative of my of my life person. I live outside of London in space, surrounded by greenery. Um, and actually ended up having a ton of good quality time with, with my daughters who had to be here because they couldn't be at school or duty. And, um, and overall, that was a wonderful time in amongst all the other rubbish. It was rubbish is the wrong word in, in amongst all the other bad stuff that was going on. So I, I took a lot of positives out of it and, and lockdown in, in of itself wasn't too stressful for me. Yeah. And do you think three really tough years with some really significant challenges has made you stronger or do you think you're just the same person you were three years ago and they're just experiences? Yeah, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger. Yeah, no, it's uh, there's, you know, a lot of beauty in those couple of years and, and a lot of tragedy and um, yeah, I'm actually fine. There's just, again... Uh, there's so much to be appreciative of and you know my my separation is amicable and uh, I'm in a new relationship now which is wonderful and my daughter is all happy and healthy and didn't you know didn't suffer from any of the kind of COVID stuff that's it's been horrendous for some other people so um, yeah I think you always need to look at the big picture and I'm a pretty positive person so but yes absolutely you you gain you gain resilience and learning from all this stuff uh, you can't not and who are your mentors like do you do or do you even utilize mentors you can embarrass me for the second time on this podcast i i spend the whole time telling other people they have to have mentors in life and i've never ever had a formal mentor um do you have an some, informal one because i think ment menteeship or mentorship can come from like being a bit of a podcast addict i've i've found myself um you know drawing on certain people via that medium um, but yeah, do you, how do you draw on it? How do you get inspired? Well, I do listen to lots of podcasts, um, less uh, in the last couple of months. Um, yeah, I mean, you read, you listen, you watch. Uh, and there are a lot of amazing people out there doing amazing things. Um, and yeah, uh, and those people, those people inspire me. And I hope the world's becoming full of more of them because it is the right direction. It's the needed direction of travel.
is there somebody that you are inspired by most? Is there someone out there that you? Not that I think of day to day that, you know, the key figureheads like Paul Pullman, ex Unilever CEO, who have been just you know, the, the biggest statesman in the business for good movement. Um, but I get inspired by every little sole trader who decides they want to do their bit and uses our platform to make it happen. So uh, I think the whole spectrum counts. Yeah. Is, it, is there a, um, someone who's used your platform that you, you know, that you've seen their business thrive and, and there's a strong correlation between your platform and their business thriving? Is there any examples that you could throw at, it, at us? Yeah, lots and lots. And I suppose one question I get asked a lot is, you know, when, when is it, is it ever too early and too small to start getting involved with, with business giving to doing some cause related marketing to putting a small pledge into what you do? And the reality is we have a lot of, a lot of people who haven't even started trading yet who want their social pledge to be part of their brand narrative on day one. Um, and because we made it so easy, you can just do that. And I suppose one nice example, and I don't have the right figures to, to mind, but a, a raffle company called Raffalux got involved and I think they've tried to approach a bunch of charities direct who are told to go away because they're too small. Uh, and in the first couple of months, uh, so they used us to make it easy because they can just do it inside five minutes without actually having to approach the charities direct. Um, at the first few months, I think they were giving 25, 30, 40 pounds a month to a couple of charities on the back of sales of these raffle tickets. Um, uh, they are now doing, I don't know in total, but I think it's probably like 30, 40,000 pounds a month. <laughs> Wonderful. That's incredible. It was, it was a clear part of, of their, their vision is to have the underlying business, but also to be creating a load of charitable funding through what they're doing, partly because that's what they wanted to do, and partly because they knew that that would also be important to, to their stakeholders. And yeah. uh, the, yeah. these small early scraps to giving hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, away each year, and I'm sure next year it'll head into the millions because they are a huge success story in the space. So yeah. uh, not every story goes quite that fast in its growth, but the you know the point is, there's uh, it's never too early or, or too small to get involved. Yeah, wonderful. Well, huge admiration from my end. Um, you and I have met a number of years ago, and um, I, I love the fact that you've um, dedicated the last six years to this, and it's great to see it becoming a success and growing um, and facilitating so much more giving, especially for those little guys. Um, those, those smaller businesses um, and enabling them to to give and give effectively. Um, so, and, and a massive thank you for joining me on, on purpose and be good to stay in touch. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.